Turn with me tonight to uh, Psalm 39. This morning we considered a call to joy and thankfulness uh, in the Christian life. And tonight I want to look with you at an important uh, balance of sorts um, to that, a passage that powerfully acknowledges the struggle to find joy uh, and thankfulness in our life. A few words about Psalm 39 before we uh, read it here tonight. Psalm 39 is a psalm of lament, um, uh, meaning, of course, it expresses sadness and grief and longing. That's a, a strange thing generally in our culture, um, even in our, our cultural Christianity, to sing songs that speak of ongoing misery and enemies and uh, longings, um, questioning God even. Uh, but at least these songs of lament generally um, uh, usually resolve in some kind of statement of faith or hope or joy in the end. Um, Psalm 28 that we read earlier tonight is a, is a great example of that. begins in trouble and despair and yet ends in great statements of faith and hope. Um, but there are two psalms that do not resolve in that way at all. Uh, Psalm 88 and Psalm 39. Um, perhaps those psalms of lament that end well, end on some kind of a happy note, uh, might at least be tolerable in our American context, given our general intolerance for sad endings or tragic themes. But what do we do with the Psalm 39? I think it really does characterize our, our culture to avoid tragic themes or uh, sad endings. Uh, one example of that might be the uh, in, in recent decades, the change from funerals to having celebrations of life. Um, you know, traditional Christian concept of a funeral encompasses um, joy and reflection and memorializing and worship and also grief and mourning. Um, the celebration of life concept uh, arose narrowly to be in the mode of happiness and uh, suppress those feelings and thoughts of, of grief, uh, having a celebration instead of a funeral. I was reading um, Carl Truman a while back commenting on, on that trend um, and comparing it to his, he's from uh, England, and um, comparing it to his shock when he first saw the Disney movie, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, which is based on uh, the, the book, Notre Dame of Paris, um, where uh, maybe you didn't know if you've only seen the Disney version, the uh, Quasimodo dies in the end. Uh, it's, it's a tragedy. Um, it doesn't have a happy ending, but in the movie, um, he doesn't die and he lives happily ever after. Right? Um, but uh, as Truman summarizes, he says, the point of the story is that Quasimodo, the guy with the hump, dies at the end and it's all terribly sad. My wife is meant to cry, and I am meant to feel angry at the raw deal Quasimodo has been dealt in the poker game of life. And to take that away is to change the storyline beyond recognition. Well, again, what do we do with a psalm that never turns to hope? Why would we have such a psalm in, in the Psalter? Uh, clearly, God's not beholden to our American insistence on, on everything having a happy ending. Um, why do we have a, uh, what, what do we do with a psalm that ends with, with the shocking request that this psalm does, which is basically, God, leave me alone. 
let me have a moment of peace uh, before I die. Um, It's certainly one of the darkest, most somber psalms. Uh, Why did God give this to his church to sing? Well, you need to know that even if you cannot relate uh, now, um, there are Christians who will rather easily relate to this psalm. Um, Who will find particular comfort and hope, perhaps, in this psalm. Um, It's given for those who are worn out or overwhelmed or in despair. Uh, Last Sunday, November 7th, was International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. Some churches uh, observe that yearly. There are Christians, of course, around the world suffering all kinds of ways to relate to the agony of this psalm, maybe in ways that we don't generally, um, where we are by God's grace. But that should be fairly obvious. Uh, Again, it may not be you, but know that there are Christians that you know, uh, doubtless Christians in this congregation, Uh, who are worn out, overwhelmed, and in despair uh, in ways that this psalm expresses. So this psalm is given for them. It's given for you, um, that you would understand them. It's given for you, uh, for when you will face uh, feelings like this uh, in the future. It's given for us, ultimately, I want us to see, to to know and understand Jesus better. So uh, I simply tonight want to uh, read through this psalm and then walk through the psalm again, get a sense of it, and then ask the question, why is it here? Um, Where is the hope and and the grace um, in this psalm? Because they're not immediately evident. Uh, It was a number of years ago I heard a friend preach on this psalm and prompted me to reflect on it uh, more, and um, I'm I'm indebted to him for a a few of the reflections and and applications here in this. So let's read uh, together Psalm 39. I said, I will guard my ways, that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle, while the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I I refrained even from good, and my sorrow grew worse. My heart was hot within me while I was musing the fire burned, and then I spoke with my tongue. Lord, make me to know my end, and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. And now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me not the reproach of the foolish. I have become mute. I do not... Open my mouth, because it is you who have done it. Remove your plague from me. Because of the opposition of your hand, I am perishing. With reproofs you chasten a man for iniquity, you consume as a moth what is precious to him. Surely every man is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner like all my fathers. Turn your gaze away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. The psalmist doesn't tell us uh, what's led him to this uh, state here. If if we take this with Psalm 38, um, uh, can't know whether uh, for sure or not whether that's appropriate, but it may be a debilitating sickness that's described there in Psalm 38. But whatever his... Whatever his uh, 
suffering, he begins with this resolution in this psalm. I, I, I'm not going to, I, I wasn't going to complain. I wasn't going to say anything. I was going to try to keep my mouth shut. That's what he says in the first couple of verses. I, I, will, I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. Guard my mouth as with a muzzle. Verse 2, I was mute and silent. What he's, he's saying, I, I tried to be strong. It might sound like, a, uh, and it's quoted sometimes, as if he's making a great statement of faith there. But the, the point the psalmist is making, that is, I, I, I tried it, this was my resolution, and it didn't work. As he goes on in verse 2, my sorrow grew worse, he says. Verse 3, my heart was hot, the fire was burning, and then I spoke with my tongue. Statistics tell us most New Year's resolutions end by January 12th. Right? That's, that's basically what the, the psalmist is saying. I, I, I tried not to complain. I tried to be quiet. And my resolution fell apart. The, the pain and anguish just burned in me. It got worse and it came pouring out. And the rest of the psalm is, is his lament, his complaint that came pouring out. Um, some parts of this psalm are sometimes quoted, and and if you pull them out of context, they maybe can sound hopeful or sound like a a strong statement of faith. Um, But I I think they're all part of his lament, especially seeing how the psalm ends. Look, for example, I I think this is how we should read verse 4. It might sound like a a request in faith for for God to give knowledge, but I think it's just part of his complaint. Verse 4 Again, Lord, make me know my end, and what is the extent of my days? Let me know how transient I am. Let's see that in the context of verse 5. Behold, you made my days as handbreadths, my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. It says three things there. My life is so short, like a few handbreadths. In fact, it seems worthless. It's just like a breath. That's the same word as in Ecclesiastes as vanity or mist. It, my life is like nothing. So looking back to verse 4, it, he's simply saying, what, what is the point of my short, sad life? Where is the purpose? Lord, make me to know the end, verse 4, in the sense of, Lord, what is, what is the goal? Where are we headed here? I, I don't see it. When will you get to the point? Verse 6 reflects the thought of Ecclesiastes that life can seem like a gathering up of successes and stuff only to leave it all to someone else. Verse 7 goes on, And now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Again, that might sound hopeful and trusting, but again, it's, it's probably not. Uh, read the verse backwards to get the sense of what the psalmist is saying. My hope is in you. What am I waiting for? Where, where is the payment on that investment of of hope that I've placed in you. Again, verse 4, what is is the end? What is the purpose? It goes on in verse 9, I've become mute. I do not open my mouth because it is you who have done it. Another bold complaint here. The psalmist says he feels like giving up. If, If God is sovereign, if this is his will, if this is God who has done it, what, what, can he, what can he say? What can I do? Verse 10, remove your plague from me. Because of the opposition of your hand, I am perishing. 
Again, this is, this is your hand. This is from you, Lord. God, God's sovereign control is, is one of the great clu- truths that we cling to, and yet reflecting on God's sovereignty uh, can be such a hard thing to square with our circumstances. Right? It, it can, um, in terrible suffering, compound grief. It can be harder to understand, trying to square it with our, our circumstances. And the psalmist seems to be saying, I, I don't think I can wrestle with that anymore, take this anymore. In verses 8 and 11, David acknowledges sin, but again, taken in context, I think he's basically saying, Lord, if I'm suffering for sin, fine, I understand that, but, but get to the end of it. Wrap it up. Where is the end? Where is the purpose? How much more can I take? In verse 12, he says, Hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my cry, do not be silent. At my tears. I'm a stranger with you. That reflects the fact that that despair and loneliness often go together. Maybe you've experienced crying, grieving over someone something when, when someone else in the room is not. The psalmist here is saying, Well, that, that seems to be God to him. And verse thirteen is the most difficult, most alarming verse in the Psalm. One of the most in the in the Psalter. Um, but maybe the, one of the most important insights into a despairing believer. Verse 13 again says, Turn your gaze away from me, that I may smile again, before I depart and am no more. That, that statement, that request that God would turn away from him is, is shocking, in part because so often the Psalter, in, in Psalms of Lament, when someone is in distress, their prayer is, Lord, turn to me. Right? Turn your face to me. Give me your attention. Or the negative, Lord, don't turn away from me. But here the request is the opposite. Lord, turn away from me. Give me a break. The, the great priestly blessing of the, of the Bible. The Lord make His face shine on you. Right? And turn His face toward you. Here he's asking for the opposite. Lord, turn your face away from me. Give me a little reprieve, a little time to be happy again without you before I die. That, that request is almost unique in the Bible. I, I think there's only one other prayer um, that, that is uh, similar really to that at all. In, in Job chapter 7, Job prays, Leave me alone, for my days are a breath. And then concludes, how long will you not look away from me or leave me alone till I can swallow my spit? Uh, again, maybe some of you can relate to that sentiment. We want to be clear what David is, is saying here, what he's not saying, what he doesn't mean. There are some verses in the Psalms that can sound like death is the end, like there's nothing more beyond that. That's kind of what it sounds like here. Uh, there are other clear, many clear verses that give a clear expectation of, of the afterlife, of eternal life with God. Um, and so a verse like this is not a denial uh, of, of the afterlife or anything beyond death, uh, but it's an affirmation of this life, of the good things, the good gifts of God in this life. Right? God had given to Israel many good things. It's it's land and it's temple and worship and community and, and good creation and so on. These things were good and they enjoyed them. And likewise, God has given us many good things 
in this life. Life itself and friends and um, fellowship and worship and so on. And there's a righteous aversion to being separated from, from the good gifts and the experience of good things in this life. Even if the, the glories of heaven are far better, and, and David writes elsewhere of that. But here, in his despair, he's, he's affirming this life and, and laments what seems to be left of it. Give me a moment to enjoy it before I die. Well, we could talk a while about this verse and have maybe lively discussion about it. Um, is this a proper way to talk to God? Where is the line between respect and honesty about our feelings? What does it mean to come boldly to God with anything? Um, but perhaps one lesson is that maybe we don't understand the intimacy that David, a man after God's own heart, had with God. Um, that we're meant to have with our Heavenly Father. The boldness and openness that we can have. That we don't have to always come to God in, in happy, clappy mode. Uh, whether in prayer or in, in song and worship. Of course we need to be careful with what we say. We always come before God with reverence. Um, never come to God arrogantly or defiantly or uh, accusingly. There, there, there is certainly a sinful way to do that. But, but you need to be assured, and you can be assured by a psalm like this, that you can bring anything to God. You can bring any doubt, any question, any pain, any disappointment, any confusion to your Heavenly Father. Well, I, want you to, I want to leave you to wrestle with that that verse more and come back to our, our questions then regarding the psalm as the whole. What, what lessons are in this psalm? What other lessons are in this psalm for us? Where is the, where is the hope and the grace? Again, we looked this morning in First Thessalonians at Paul's command to rejoice always, to give thanks in everything. And so can we, can we sing a psalm like this? Let's look at two, two brief lessons and then two ways that we see grace even in this psalm. The first lesson is that suffering is always an occasion for confessing sin. Suffering is always an occasion for confessing sin, for remembering the destructive nature of sin, the, the just wrath of God against sin. That's not to say that your suffering or your friend's suffering is, is directly tied to a particular sin. That's not how God deals with his people um, that's not what you lead with in counseling or comforting someone. That's what Job's friends did, tried with him. But suffering exists generally because of sin. God uses it to, to humble us and, and to prompt us to reflect and to confess. And, and David gives that example in this psalm. Verse 8, deliver me from all my transgressions. Uh, verse 11, with reproofs you chasten a man for iniquity. That's the first lesson I want you to consider. Secondly, that David gives us the example of at least turning to God in despair. Turning to God in despair. Not turning away or rejecting God. The whole psalm, as despairing as it is, is addressed to God. Is addressed to God as sovereign. Even if we can't understand God's sovereignty, even if reflecting on His sovereignty seems to add salt to our wounds at times, as the, the psalmist seems to experience here, um, and, and elsewhere, Psalm 42 and, and others, he knows it to be true, that God is sovereign. And it reflects the truth that if, if not to God, there's nowhere else to turn. 
Nowhere else in the universe. The psalmist said, it is, it is you who have done it. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry. It's an encouragement to you to turn to God even when you don't feel like it, even when you don't feel trusting, even when you're not feeling uh, faith as you are in other times, even when it doesn't seem to comfort you to reflect on those things. Secondly, I want to ask then the third uh, thirdly on your outline there, where is the grace and the hope? Where is the grace and the hope in this psalm? And, and the first answer is the one I want you to think about particularly. That it's in the simple existence of this psalm. It's in the simple existence of this psalm. It's an encouragement that God has given us an expression of grief and, and despair in the middle of his songbook with which to address him. And God knows that his people need to sing this song. Not every day, not every week, but at times. If you ever feel like this, you may feel like you're the only one. Like everyone else is always happy and you're supposed to always be happy. This is what social media preaches to us constantly, right? Um, everyone looks so happy. No one posts their fight with their spouse or their addiction problem or the mundane moments that make up the vast majority of the hours of every day. That spills over into our expectation for worship and, and culturally expectation of what worship should look like. But it's in the mode of happy, clappy all the time. Well, I'm going to quote at, 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 uh, at some length here. Uh, Penrick ha- Patrick Henry Reardon commenting on this. He says, it is imperative to rid ourselves of the notion that true worship must invariably be festive, be happy, be celebratory. He says, because Jesus has definitively triumphed over sin and suffering and death, it's natural and understandable that some Christians come to the conclusion that sentiments of sadness and feelings of discouragement and despondency and dereliction have no proper place in Christian worship. But who among us never sees a day when all is darkness? We struggle to hold such sentiments at bay, of course, and doubtless feel guilty when we have them. But can anyone claim fully to have purged our hearts of all despair? We we wonder how we as Christians can express such seemingly non-Christian responses in our prayer. And perhaps we think it would manifest a lack of faith if we did so. Who are we, after all, to experience such feelings of despair when Christ has conquered all evil? In consequence, such feelings remain concealed in the caverns of the heart, not brought forth in the light, finding no portion in our prayer, and assigned no part in the process of our salvation. But that's clearly not God's intention, that we would hide our distress. Uh, Even in worship, he's given us Psalm 39. Uh, Again, it's a lesson that you are not alone. In sadness, even in despair, the the presence of Psalm 39 and others in God's word is evidence that you have a God who knows you, who identifies with you, identifies with you in suffering. That's been God's faithful revelation of himself throughout all of history. Right? When God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden, he said, because of your sin, you, you can't be here anymore. He barred them from returning and and put them under the curse because of the sin they'd chosen. What did he do? He he went with them. 
right? When he consigned his people to wander in the wilderness for 40 years because of their rebellion and their ingratitude, what did he do? He, he set his tabernacle right in the middle of them. And went with them and provided for them all the way. When God generally promises humanity that they would suffer because of sin, the consequences of sin, what did he do ultimately? He came as a man, born into humil- humility, hu- humiliation, to suffering and unjust deaths. We need to understand that the, the force of comfort in seeing maybe something of our experience reflected in a psalm like Psalm 39, the force of that comfort is not simply that someone else who lived a long time ago had some bad experiences and some hard days like we do, and so we, we relate to that and it helps us feel better. That's not the force of the comfort, but rather that Psalm 39 reveals the suffering and the agony of Jesus. Not your identifying with someone a long time ago who felt something like you do, but Jesus identifies with you. We identify with Him. If, if you don't understand that the Psalms are ultimately about Jesus, that they point to Jesus, I encourage you to reflect on that, learn about that more. But this is how the Psalter is treated in the New Testament. As, as Jesus draws on these Psalms and other writers of the New Testament, <clears throat> He shows that they are prophetic of His suffering. So that, that David's suffering that's reflected in this psalm and, and your suffering is only meaningful because Jesus suffered as a man for sin. I think besides the cross, there's, there's no clearer picture in the Gospels of Jesus suffering His agony than in the Garden of Gethsemane. When, when Jesus was in agony as a man over the will of the Father for Him. Right? He, he actually spoke of your will over against my will. His sweat pouring down like blood. Uh, facing the greatest agony and suffering that ed- anyone ever did or will. The Father forsaking Him. Pouring out His crushing wrath for sin. So that you will never have to suffer that. The, the Psalms express the agonies and the hopes and the trust and the faith and the obedience ultimately of, of Jesus, the praise of Jesus. If, if we think that Psalm 39 is weird or strange or unnecessary, perhaps we forget that Jesus' life on the cross ended with a cry of lament, a question to God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus gives us his own words in the, in the Psalms with which to cry out to him. And similar things. Again, the fact of the existence of this psalm not only tells us um, something about what is good and acceptable to bring in our, in our prayers, in our worship, in our singing uh, to God, it's an encouragement to us from a really struggling uh, philosopher, Philip Reith, who's not a believer, uh, but famously commented on the, the change of worship um, in the Western world over many years. Um, to, from what it used to be to a more therapeutic experience. And he, he summarizes that by saying, in times past, Christians did not go to church to be made to feel good and feel happy, but to have their misery explained to them. Um, of course, through that, to be pointed to ultimate hope. So the existence of this psalm 
is a grace of God. And then secondly, a hope and grace are clear in reading other psalms. In reading other psalms, reading this psalm in, in context. <clears throat> and struck David, uh, we, we know this isn't the, the end of the story for David. Uh, David instructs us many times in places and other psalms and in truth and hope and, and praise and God's grace. When David reflects in Psalm 119 on, on terrible suffering, for example, he says, It was good for me that I faced affliction. Um, you afflicted me in faithfulness. We ought to read the Psalms in, in context, recognize they're not randomly arranged. Um, so look with me at, at the next Psalm, Psalm 40. Look how it begins. I waited patiently for the Lord. And he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. And he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust the Lord. I, I don't know for sure whether Psalm 40 is an answer to Psalm 39. But it's important for us to see that even in Psalm 40 there, he's... He's looking back on a time when he was in the pit of destruction and miry clay, uh, mired in trouble and despair, and, and God heard his cry and brought him through to praise. Uh, Psalm 39 is not the last chapter for David or for you. And, of course, saying that doesn't always, just saying that doesn't make you feel better, and we can't have all of our questions answered as as we suffer, but... We come back to the question, how can you trust a God who allows and ordains all that, that Psalm 39 reflects or describes, for example? And the key answer to that, again, is because he suffers with you and for you. And the Savior who suffered throughout his life and suffered death has gone ahead of you in resurrection and assures you as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, that this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. God's Word promises to us, Jesus, having uh, raised from the dead and gone ahead of us to heaven, assures you that even if you can't see it, even if you can't understand it, um, even if you can't say it in full joy and contentment in this life, you, you will one day confess that that momentary affliction was preparing for me an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Let's pray together and then sing this psalm together in faith in the God who suffers with us. Father in heaven, we thank you again uh, this evening for your word. We thank you for your uh, incredible grace displayed in uh, providing a psalm uh, for your people uh, like this uh, to express grief and understand that we can do that. We thank you for the example of that in, in the life of Jesus and how that's reflected in the psalms. We pray that you would um, bind up the brokenhearted and uh, comfort any who are despairing um, uh, prepare all of us uh, for those times when we uh, face such difficult things. Uh, teach us uh, to hope in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.